3 a.m. Tales of Terror contains explicit content. Listener discretion is advised. Hello and welcome to another episode of 3 a.m. Tales of Terror where we tell you stories of the paranormal. I'm your host, Jamie. And I'm Kenny. And this is part five and the last part of the Amityville Horror Story. Hopefully. Hopefully. No, it will be, for real. (laughs) You've said that like every episode. This will be the last part. Also, part four of our um, Amityville Horror Story was episode 50, and I didn't realize that. We've done 50 episodes. So what you're saying is, is our next episode will be your one year anniversary. 52 weeks to a year, dear. Yeah. So not this one, but the next one. Which makes sense because we started it in June last year. It was like June something. The beginning of June, I think. Is Wait a second. Is that how calendars work? Stop it. You're such a bunghole. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. So, anyways, we're going to pick up where we left off. And so we're going to end this season. This would be season one. Yeah. You're going to end it with Amityville. Well, we're going to have one more story after this one. Because this episode is 51, and then the next one will be 52. Right. Right. Yeah, okay. You, you got Unless it. Unless you two-part this one as well. No, I'm not going to do that. Unless we're sitting here for an hour. So, we stopped... We're still on January 8th, because now we're talking about January 8th to the 9th, and we stopped where Kathy and George were trying to bless the house themselves, and... They heard a bunch of noises, They heard a bunch of noises, and Kathy started saying the prayer, and then um, that voice that George heard that said, will you stop? And it was a lot louder than that. So, we're going to pick up do you want to read first you want me to read first um i personally like reading first yeah you could actually read first because i stopped i i finished reading last so yeah you could read first if you want to you made you like the voice of the demon no get out oh my god no no is that thing you're drinking fantastic (laughs) okay Father Mancuso felt too weak to celebrate Mass at the church, so he remained in his quarters, praying at his pre-do? Pre-do? Is it a pre-do? I don't know what that is. So anyway, the phone rang. It was Father Nuncio calling from the Chancellor's office to say that he and Father Ryan could see Father Mancuso. The priest pleaded that his illness prevented him from coming to the Chancellor chancery but asked whether he could discuss the Lutz's situation over the telephone father nuncio agreed and listened as father mancuso related the latest developments at 112 ocean ave without hesitation the chancellor agreed with father mancuso's suggestion that the Lutzes move out of their house for a while father mancuso informed father nuncio of his decision not to return to the house in amityville and said that he would merely relay the message over the telephone which has been working so good so far <laughs> They have had zero reception problems with their phones. I know. In Amityville, Kathy and George were still shaken from the previous night's performance by the unseen chorus. She had remained awake, sitting in their bedroom. George returned the crucifix to the closet wall 
and then he and Kathy held hands, each whispering reassuring words to soothe the other's fright. At 8 o'clock, Kathy had risen from the edge of the bed and awakened the children. Jimmy and Carrie came out of Missy's bedroom at 8.30, dressed and ready for breakfast. After speaking to Father Nuncio, Father Mancuso called George Lutz to tell him of the Chancellor's decision. He let the telephone ring for a long time and was ready to give up when George answered. Father Mancuso assumed the instrument was up to its weird tricks, so he was surprised that he had gotten through without interference. Again, could have been working so good the whole time. I know. George said that they had just returned from seeing Jimmy off to East Babylon. Then George repeated the results of their impromptu blessing ceremony the night before. Dismayed, Father Mancuso urged George to heed the Chancellor's advice and get out of the house, then and there. And George, he said, don't ever do that again. You're invoking God's name in the manner you did not only anger whatever is in your house. Just don't do anything anymore. It's already completely out of hand. Father, George interrupted, what are you saying? The priest hesitated. Had he said too much? The chancellors had confined any discussion of the Lutz's case to scientific causes, and there would be a long period of investigation before the church would acknowledge demonic influence. He hadn't meant to express his own personal fears. I'm not sure, Father Mancuso corrected himself. That's why I plead with you to leave your house now until some determination can be made, scientifically or... The priest hesitated. Or what, George asked. It may be more dangerous than any of us realize, Father Mancuso answered. Look, George, many things happen that none of us can really explain away. I admit I'm very confused about what seems to be an evil force in your house. I also admit that it may be caused by more than our imaginations. The priest paused. George, you still there? Yeah, Father, I'm listening. All right, then. Father Mancuso began again. Please get out. <laughs> I love how blunt this man is now. Let things cool down for a while. If you get away, maybe we can all think this thing out with more rationality. I'll tell the chancellors what happened last night, and maybe they'll send someone right. Father Mancuso was interrupted by Kathy's scream over the telephone. George blurted, call you back. And the <laughs> he probably didn't say it like that. He probably didn't say, call you back. No, he did He probably <laughs> He probably said, call you back. Yeah. Fucking, <laughs> <laughs> call you back, thanks. <laughs> and the priest heard him bang down the receiver. He stood there in his living room, wondering what unnatural act is now being played out at 112 Ocean Ave. You know, if he would just show the fuck up over there, he'd he probably figure it out. He was told not to. I, well... George, Keek, we're not asking for your opinion here. Oh, my God. George, your mouth. I'm sorry. Bitch, I'm trying to read. George, I'm sorry. Did you? <laughs> okay, that's the last time. I'm sorry. I will quit. <laughs> Hand to God, I will quit. <laughs> okay. Hold on, I gotta compose myself. Oh. Who? Look at me like that. Who? I'm illiterate as it is. I don't need you helping. <laughs> Trust me, we know. 
Okay. All right. I'm I'm good. <laughs> That's why I'm waiting. <laughs> okay. Hold on. <laughs> Whew. George ran up the stairs to the third floor. When he reached the landing, he saw Kathy in the hallway shrieking at Danny, Chris, and Missy. George could see why. On every wall in the hall, there were green, gelatinous spots oozing down from the ceiling to the floor, settling in shimmering pools of green slime. Which one of you did this? Kathy fumed. Tell me, or I'll break every bone in your bodies. We didn't do it, Mama, all three children chorused at once, dodging the slap she was aiming at their heads. We didn't do it, Danny yelled. We saw it when you came upstairs. Blah, blah, blah. Blah, blah. We saw it when we came upstairs. George stepped between his wife and children. Wait a minute, honey, he said gently. Maybe the kids didn't do it. Let me take a look. He went up to one wall, stuck his finger into the green spot. He looked at the substance, smelled it, and then put a little against the tip of his tongue. Just like a man should. Oh, my God. Always. It sure, <laughs> it sure doesn't look like Jello, he said, smacking his lips. But it doesn't have any taste at all. That's ghost schmegma. No, there's actually there's a word for ectoplasm. it. Ectoplasm. Thank you. I like ghost schmegma better. Whatever. Schmegma. <laughs> okay. I know that you gave me a face when I was reading that as I was laughing, but that's how you identify stuff. Spot in the driveway, little dab. Oh yeah, that's oil. It's you don't put, wiper fluid. You don't put anything in your mouth. Yeah, you do. No, you don't. What if it was cocaine? I'd find out real quick. <laughs> Guys do that all the time. I know, and how that's why you, that's why women tell, live longer than men. How can you tell if it's transmission fluid, oil, windshield washer fluid, or just water? You gotta taste it. Well, if it was windshield washer fluid, it'd be blue. You what? Wouldn't it? You know, it doesn't have to have a color. It's blue. Yeah, but now it's on a driveway and concrete. It won't be blue anymore. It might be. Aren't you the one that Why are you tasting things out of a driveway anyway? To see if my car's leaking. See if your car's leaking. That it's a guy thing. It's a it's a dude thing. That's nasty. Not really. That's what this is why women live longer than men. No, women live longer than men because they have men do all everything for them. <laughs> well Roasted. Well you don't do a good job of it anyways. Is that so? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Because I didn't fix your mirror, right? Because that mailbox you, you fixed out. You fixed my mirror, but you fucked up my battery. That's because it took me two hours because I had to disassemble, disassemble. the entire interior of your door. The entire panel had to come off. Listen, a, a, a mailbox jumped out in front of me. I didn't see it. Shit came out of nowhere. It really did. <laughs> Ripped it off. Ripped it off. And then he fixed it, and then I went to go start my car, and it went tick, 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 because <laughs> he fucking nuked my battery. Because unbeknownst to me, it was the original battery that was almost four years old. Yeah, it's the original battery. I didn't need a new one. It was working. The until car you, was turning on. Until you ripped the mirror off. <laughs> <laughs> it was turning on and off just fine before you messed with it. Well, you know what? Next time. You have somebody else fix your fucking mirror. <laughs> no. I'll go and rip the other one off. No. Damn it. So that is why women live longer than men. It's because they just scream 
And he's like, oh, you want to beat the children? Why don't you figure out if they actually did it or not? Not only did she say she wanted to beat them, she said she was going to break every bone in their body. That's a little excessive. Her assumption is her kids made jello and somehow threw it in the ceiling and on the walls. Yeah, they're kids. What did you do you expect anything less from them? I'm pretty sure that because of the amount of time that she spends in the kitchen, not in like a derogatory way, but in this book, she's in the kitchen. Are you quite sure? Because you normally say that in a derogatory way a lot. Well, I mean, the woman ghost is in there too. So, I mean, in fairness. But anyway, um, <laughs> <laughs> no, but like she spends most of her time either in her room in the kitchen so right. would she not have seen her kids make freaking gallons of jello like literal gallons it yeah. caked the hallway and the walls yeah i don't know that's uh, i would have noticed my kid making gallons of jello where would they have gotten all the ingredients for that because <laughs> like i don't i don't ever i mean i know they obviously go grocery shopping but like when i don't know i don't know so anyway so he, so he tasted it, said it wasn't jello. Kathy was calming down after her tirade. Could it be paint, she asked. George shook his head. Nope. He tried to get the feel of the jelly by rolling it against his fingertips. I don't know what it is, but it sure leaves a mess. He looked up at the ceiling. Doesn't seem to be coming from up there, George stopped. He looked around him, as if realizing for the first time where he was. In a rush, he recalled the conversation he had had with Father Mancuso a few minutes before. And the dreaded word, devil, almost slipped from his lips. What did you say, George? Said Kathy. I didn't hear you. He looked at his wife and children. Nothing. I was just trying to think. He began to edge the others towards the staircase. Listen, he said. I'm hungry. Let's go down to the kitchen and have a bite. Then the boys and me will come back up and clean up this gook. Okay, gang? Jimmy and Carrie had arrived back in East Babylon. Carrie was happy to be away from 112 Ocean Ave, even if it meant being at her mother-in-law's. I, f I felt creepy there, Jimmy, she said as they got out of the car. I know I saw that little boy last night, no matter what anybody says. Jimmy reached out and patted his wife's behind. Aw, oh, forget it, baby, he said. It was just a dream. You know I don't believe in that stuff. Carrie squirmed away from Jimmy's touch, looking around to see if any neighbors were watching. But as she was about to go in the door, he grabbed her arm. Listen, Carrie, he said, drawing her close. Do me a favor. Don't mention what happened in front of Ma. She gets very upset about such things. Next thing you know, we'll have a priest over here. Carrie stood her ground. What about our money you lost at Kathy's? You say that was a dream, too? See? Facetious. She'd be in bottle. <laughs> She'd be in a bottle. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, I mean, the fact that they went on their honeymoon, the fact that they lost the money... And then they went on their honeymoon, and then they come back, and it's still not there. It does kind of make it look like they stole it. Yeah, you'll get that in those big jobs. But I don't... Father Mancuso spent the rest of the afternoon wondering why George hadn't called him back after hearing Kathy scream. At one point, he considered calling Sergeant Gianfredo, forget Italian names, of the Suffolk County Police to check on the Lutzes. But a policeman ringing their bell out of the blue might cause them even more alarm. Oh, God, he thought. I hope nothing's happened. Finally, the priest picked up the phone and dialed George's number. There was no answer, because the whole family was out back in the boathouse, where the noise of the compressor drowned out the sounds of the rings. George, Danny, and Chris were dumping gobs of green jelly into the freezing water beside their boat. That's good. Don't know what it is? River. Like true Americans. Oh, my God. <laughs> the compressor hose kept churning 
the substance, mixing it with the icy water so that it was swept below the ice. As the boys flung it over the narrow wooden walkway, Kathy was brushing away what felt what fell from their pails. Missy was holding on to Harry to keep the dog out of everyone's way. George worked in silence, trying not to communicate his fears to Kathy and the children. Fortunately for him, Kathy still suspected that the children had been responsible for the mess. She hadn't yet equated the green slime with the other mysterious problems that afflicted the house. George had been so absorbed in his thoughts that he had completely forgotten to call Father Mancuso back. By the evening, sitting beside the fireplace, Kathy was all for leaving for her mother's, but when she suggested it, that they get out of the house that night, George suddenly went berserk. Fuck no, he shouted. Jumping up from his chair, his face red with rage. All the pressures that had been building within him finally exploded. Every fucking thing we own in the world is in this house, he stormed. I've got too much invested here to give it up just like that. The children who were still up cringed and ran to their mother's side. Even Kathy was frightened by the side of George that she had never seen. He had the look of a man possessed. Dun dun. Absolutely livid, he stood at the foot of the staircase in screams so that he could be heard in every room in the house. You sons of bitches, get out of my house. Then he ran up the stairs to the third floor into the playroom and threw all the windows open wide. Get out. Get out in the name of God. Wasn't he just advised to not do that? Well, you know, he's having a mental breakdown. (laughs) I mean, it's about time. George ran into the boys' bedroom, then down to the second floor and repeated his action, shoving up each window in every room, bellowing, Get out in the name of God, again and again. Some of the windows resisted his push. He banged furiously on the frames until they loosened. Cold air poured in from the house, and soon the whole house was as frigid as the outdoors. Finally, George was finished. By the time he returned to the first floor, the anger was leaving his body. Exhausted from his efforts and panting heavily, he stood in the center of the living room, tightly clenching and unclenching his fists. While George was on his holy errand, Kathy and the children had been rooted to a spot near the fireplace. Now they came up to him slowly, encircled him, and lifted his arms and embraced all four frightened people. There was a fifth, very human witness to this tabloid. Sergeant Al Gianfrido, the police officer whom Father Mancuso had wanted to call, had been making a final check of Amityville before he went off duty at nine. As he was passing down Ocean Ave, the astonishing sight of a madman tearing around in 112 opening windows in the dead of winter had caused him to break his cruiser. Gianfrido pulled up to the intersection where South Ireland Place cuts into Ocean Ave, directly opposite of the Lutzes. He turned off his headlights. Something was holding him back from getting out of his car and going up to the front door. He really didn't want to investigate why the owner was behaving like a lunatic. Gianfrido sat there and watched as a woman went around and shut all the windows in the house. That must be Mrs. Lutz, he thought. They seem to be all right now. I'll just keep my nose out of it. He sighed and turned over the motor of his car. Keeping his headlights off, the policeman slowly backed down South Ireland Place until he could make a left turn on the street that paralleled Ocean. Only then did he turn his lights on. Over the following hour, 112 Ocean Ave warmed up again. The heat with the radiators finally overcame the frigid air that had invaded the house, and once more the thermostat read 75. So hot. I know. Could not do it. No. It's like 68 in this house now, or 67. And that, and sometimes even that gets warm. <laughs> yeah, I like a crisp 66. Mm-hmm. We kept it on 65. 
at the house in Kerners. Because, mm-hmm. <laughs> well, that one was small. We probably do the same thing with a new house. Absolutely, we will. <laughs> the boys had been dozing in front of the fireplace while Kathy held little Missy in her arms, rocking the sleeping girl. At 10 o'clock, she checked the children's bedrooms and decided that Danny and Chris could go now to could now go to bed. Since his tirade, George had been completely uncommunicative, silently staring at his blazing logs. Kathy left him alone, realizing her husband was trying to resolve their dilemma in his own way. After the children were tucked away upstairs, she finally went to him and gently tried to urge him out of the room. George looked at Kathy, and she saw the confusion and anger in his face. His eyes were misty. George seemed to be crying over his frustrations. The poor guy deserved a break, she thought. He shook his head at her suggestion to go up to bed. You go, he said softly. I'll be up in a while. His eyes returned to the dancing flames. In her bedroom, Kathy left the lamp on George's nightstand burning. She undressed, slipped into bed, and closed her eyes. Kathy could hear the wind howling outside. The sound slowly relaxed her so that in a few minutes she began to doze off. Suddenly, Kathy sat bolt upright and looked at George's side of the bed. He still wasn't there. Then she slowly turned her head and looked behind her. She saw her image reflected in the mirrors that covered the wall from the ceiling to floor, and she had the urge to get the crucifix out of the closet again. So strong was the feeling that Kathy was halfway out of bed when she stopped again and stared into the mirrors. Her image seemed to take on a life of its own, and she could hear it saying, Don't do it. You'll destroy everyone. When George came up to the bedroom, he found Kathy asleep. He adjusted the covers about his wife, then went to her nightstand and removed her Bible from its drawer. He turned out his light and silently left the room. George returned to his chair in the living room, opened the Bible, and began at the beginning, the book of Genesis. In the first book of God's revelations, he, con- he came upon verses that caused him to reflect upon his predicament. He read one aloud to himself, And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because thou hast done this thing, thou art cursed among all cattle and beasts on the earth. Upon thy breast shalt thy go, and earth shall eat all the days of thy life. George shivered. The serpent is the devil, he thought. Then he felt a hot blast in his face, and he snapped his head up from the book. The flames of the fireplace were reaching out for him. George leaped off his chair and jumped back. The fire he had left to die was roaring to life again, the blaze filling the entire hearth. He could feel its searing heat, but then he was stabbed in the back by an icy finger. George. George. (laughs) George whirled about. Nothing was there. He could feel a draft. He could almost see it in the form of a cold mist coming down from the staircase hallway. Gripping the Bible tightly, George raced up the steps towards his bedroom. The cold wrapped itself about him as he ran. He stood in his bedroom doorway. The room was warm. Again, he was struck by icy fingers. George ran to Missy's bedroom and flung open the door. The windows were wide open, the below-freezing air pouring in. George grabbed up his daughter from her bed. He could feel her little body was icy and shivering. Rushing out of the room, he ran back to his bedroom and put Missy under the cover. Kathy woke up. Warm her up, George yelled. She's freezing to death. Without hesitation, Kathy covered the little girl with her own body. George ran out of the room and up to the third floor. The windows in Chris's and Danny's room, George found, were also wide open. The boys were asleep but burrowed completely under their blankets. He gathered both in his arms, staggered them downstairs to his bedroom. Danny and Chris's teeth were chattering from the cold. George pushed them into bed and got under the blankets with them, his body on top of theirs. All five Lutzes were in one bed, the three children slowly thawing out, 
the two parents rubbing their hands and feet. It took almost half an hour before the children's body temperatures returned back to normal. Only then did George realize he was still holding on to the Bible. Knowing he had been more than warned, he flung it to the floor. <clears throat> yeah, that's what you should do. Just throw the Bible on the floor. Well, he was told not to anger it. So he decided he was going to fling open all of the windows <laughs> and say, in the name of God, leave my house. So as a middle finger to George Lutz, because obviously the man does not have a super strong faith and he was told not to piss this thing off, the demon or the being or whatever said, I can play that card. I'll kill your kids. Oh my God. Because the only windows that were open were his children's. And it kept him and his wife nice and warm. Yeah. It was a distraction. Well, they've been told to do a lot of things that they're not doing, so. Yeah, white people. <laughs> okay, so January 10th. On Saturday morning, Kathy's mother, Joan, received a frantic call from her daughter. Ma, I need you immediately. When Mrs. Connors tried to question Kathy over the phone as to what had happened, she said only that there was no way to explain her mother had to see for herself. The older woman took a cab from East Babylon to the house in Amityville. George let his mother-in-law in and hurried her upstairs to Kathy's bedroom. Coming back down, he cautioned Danny, Chris, and Missy to finish their breakfast. When he left the kitchen to join the two women upstairs, the children were unnaturally subdued and, subdued and meekly obeyed their father. But judging from the way they were eating, they had evidently recovered from their freezing experience the night before. When George entered his bedroom, his mother-in-law was examining Kathy, who lay on the bed naked beneath her open bathrobe. Her, Kathy watched as her mother's finger traced the ugly red welts that extended from just above her pubic hairline to the bottom of her breast. The streaks were flaming red as though she had been burned by a hot poker slashed laterally across Kathy's body. Ow, her mother winced, jerking a finger back from one of the welts on Kathy's stomach. I burned myself. I told you to be careful, Mama, Kathy cried. It happened to George, too. Kathy's mother looked at him, and George nodded. I tried putting some cold cream on them, he said, but even that didn't help. The only way you can touch her is with gloves. Did you call a doctor? No, Ma, Kathy answered. She didn't want the doctor, George broke in. She only wanted you. Does it hurt, Kathy? The frightened girl began to cry. George answered for her. They don't seem to, only when she touches them. Kathy's mother put a hand to her sobbing girl's hair, stroking it gently. My poor baby, she said. Don't you worry now. I'm here. Everything's going to be all right. She leaned forward and kissed Kathy's tear-stained face. Then she closed Kathy's bathrobe, softly folding it over her inflamed body. She stood up. I'm going to call Dr. Alio? A A A A Alio? I don't know how to say that. Ayo? Ayo? I don't know. No, cried Kathy. She looked at her husband, her eyes wild. George! George put his hand out to Mrs. Connors. What are you going to tell him? Kathy's mother was confused. What do you mean, she asked. You can see she's burned all over her body. George was insistent. But how are you going to explain it to him, Ma? We don't even know how it happened. She just woke up that way. He'll think we're nuts. He hesitated. If he told Kathy's mother any more about what had happened during the night, he would have to disclose the demonic events that were plaguing the house. Knowing Mrs. Connor's heavily church-oriented background, George felt sure that she would insist upon Kathy and the children leaving until she could talk to her priest. 
George had met the cleric and knew him to be very much like the elderly confessor at the St. Martin of Tours in Amityville, unworldly when it came to anything beyond simple parish duties. In reality, George would have welcomed a priest, but not the one from East Babylon, and he did expect to hear momentarily from George Kakoris, the psychical investigator. Let her rest a while, Ma, he finally said. The marks seem to be easing up from what they were before. Maybe they'll go away soon. He was remembering the slash lines on Kathy's face. Yeah, Mama, Kathy said, also fearing to involve her mother any more deeply. I'll lie here a little longer. Can you stay with me? Kathy's mother looked from her daughter to George. There's something going on that they're not telling me about, she thought to herself. She would have liked to tell Kathy that she never ha- that she had never liked this house, that each time she was here she felt uncomfortable. She just did not trust 112 Ocean Avenue. Looking back, Mrs. Jones Connors now knows why. George left the two women upstairs and went down to the kitchen. Danny, Chris, and Missy had finished their food and had even cleared off the table in the breakfast nook. When he came in there, there were questions in their eyes. Mama's all right, George assured them. Grandma's going to stay with her. He put his hand on top of Missy's head and turned her toward the doorway. Come on, gang, George said. Let's go out for a while. We got to get some things at the store, and I want to stop at the library. After George and the children had driven off, Kathy's mother left her daughter alone for a few minutes and went downstairs to the kitchen to call Jimmy. Her son would want to know why she had rushed off to Kathy's so hurriedly. Jimmy had wanted to drive Mrs. Connors to Kathy's, but said he should stay at home in case she needed anything from her house. Over the phone, she told Jimmy that Kathy had some stomach cramps. She'd call him later when she was about to leave. Jimmy didn't believe her and said he wanted to come over with Carrie. He was not to come, his mother yelled at him, and he wasn't to bring Carrie. She didn't want to report, she didn't want the report that Jimmy's family was a little crazy to get back to her son's new in-laws. Kathy, lying in bed, could hear her mother downstairs, shouting into the telephone at her brother. She sighed and opened her robe once more to look at the burning red marks on her body. The welts were still there, but she, but they did seem fainter. Then she tried touching one of the slashes under her right breast. Her finger rested on the ugly spot. It seemed to Kathy that the sensation wasn't as severe as before. The reaction was more like putting her finger under very warm water. Again, she sighed. Kathy was about to close her bathrobe when she sensed someone was staring at her nakedness. The feeling of a presence came from right behind her, but Kathy couldn't bring herself to turn and look. She knew the mirrored wall was there, and she was afraid that in it she would see something terrible. Paralyzed with fear, she was unable to even raise her arms to draw the robe about her. She remained that way, her, her body completely exposed, her eyes tightly shut, cringing inwardly, waiting for the unknown touch. Kathy, what are you doing? You'll catch your death of cold! It was her mother back from the kitchen. Even after the red welts had completely disappeared, Mrs. Connors didn't want to leave Kathy. When George returned with the children, she argued that the whole family should leave 112 Ocean Avenue. He could stay if he wanted, but she insisted her, Kathy, and her grandchildren go. By then, Kathy was asleep upstairs, and after after the latest episode, George didn't want to awaken her. Let her sleep a little while longer, Ma, he said. We'll see about coming over later. His mother-in-law had agreed reluctantly, getting him to promise to call her the minute her daughter awoke. 
If you don't, George, I'll be back, she warned him. He called her a cab, and she returned to East Babylon at four in the afternoon. At the Amityville Library, George had been able to secure a temporary borrower's card and take out one book, On Witches and Demons. Now that his mother-in-law had gone home, he sat alone in the living room, deep in the subject of the devil and his works. It was after eight in the evening before George finished his borrowed book. During the afternoon, Kathy's mother, Kathy's mother had prepared spaghetti and meatballs that George set out for supper time. Danny, Chris, and Missy ate while George continued reading. The last time he had looked in on Kathy, she stirred a little, and he thought she was about ready to awaken from her much-needed rest. Now he was in the kitchen, and the three children were in the living room watching television. George had made notes while going through the book, and now he looked at what he had jotted down. On the pad was a list of demons with names he had never heard of. George tried to pronounce them aloud, and they rolled strangely off his tongue. He then decided to call Father, Father Mancuso. The priest was surprised that the Lutzes were still at 112 Ocean Avenue. I thought you were going to leave the house, he said. I told you what the Chancellor said to do. I know, Father, I know, answered George, but now I think I know how to lick this thing. He picked up the book from the table. I've been reading about how these witches and demons work. Good Lord, Father Mancuso thought, I'm dealing with a child, an innocent. Here the man's house is about to explode under him and his family, and he's talking to me about witches. And it says here, if you hold an incantation and repeat those demons' names three times, you can call them up, George went on. Oh my God. <laughs> what a dumbass. Oh my God. There's a ceremony in here that shows you exactly what to do. Is Quran Madeste. George began to, I don't even know if I should have said that. <laughs> like, George began to chant. Oh no, he's chanting it. Oh, he's calling the demons. No, names. no, stop. Oh man. Those are the names of the demons, Father. I know who they are, Father Mancuso blurted. Then there's Isabo, Urz, Urz, this one's hard to pronounce, Urzalade. She has something to do with voodoo and Eslender. George, the priest cried, for God's sake, don't invoke those names again. Not now, not ever. Why, Father, George protested. It's right here in this book. What's wrong with... The telephone went dead in George's hand. There was an unearthly moan, a loud clicking, and then just the sound of a disconnected line. Did Father Mancuso hang up on me, George wondered. He probably did! I'd hang up on you, too. Yeah, I wouldn't want some maniac calling me chanting demons' names. My fucking I... <laughs> and what's happened to this guy, Kikoris? Was that my mother? George turned and saw Kathy standing in the doorway. No longer in her robe, she had combed her hair and was wearing slacks and a sweater. Her face was slightly flushed. George shook his head. How do you feel, honey? He asked. Have a good sleep? <laughs> Did you? <laughs> <laughs> Kathy lifted up her sweater, bearing her navel. It's gone, she stroked herself. They're not there anymore. She sat down at the table. Where are the kids? They're watching television, George answered. He took her hands in his. You want to call your mother now? Kathy nodded. She felt strangely relaxed, almost sensual. <laughs> Ever since she had the sensation of being stared at in her bed, Kathy had been in a... Oh, no, what? Langorious. 
languorous, languorous, I think it's languorous. Yeah, languorous mood, as if she had been completely satisfied sexually. That's weird. It had even carried over into her recent nap, she mused, when she hadn't unconnected visions of making love to someone. It wasn't George. She being fucked by a ghost. Oh my god! That's where all the ectoplasm's from. Like that. Like that. <laughs> Which one? What? What was it? The scary? Was it scary? One of the scary movies with a girl. She was she got fucked by a ghost. It was one of the scary movies. Yeah. And she was wearing because it, it was funny because the ghost she was wearing like Wednesday underwear and it was like Thursday and the ghost was like, huh. <laughs> I'm sorry. I love I love scary movies. You're such a child. I love those movies. They're funny. Kathy dialed her mother's number while George went into the living room with the children. He heard a loud clap of thunder. Looking out the windows, he saw the first raindrop strike the panes. Then somewhere in the distance, a flash of lightning hit the darkness again, and a few moments later came another boom of thunder. George could make out the silhouettes of trees swaying in the rising gust. Kathy came into the room. My mother says it's raining cats and dogs there, she announced. She wants us to use our van rather than have Jimmy come for us. The rain was coming down much harder now, beating heavily against the windows and outside walls. From the sound of that, George said, none of us are going anywhere at the moment. When she had left her bedroom, Kathy opened the windows about an inch to air out the room. Even if there wasn't much room for water to get in with the storm coming, she wanted to play it safe. Danny, she called, run up to my room and close those windows tight, okay? George himself ran out to bring Harry inside. In spite of these, in, sp- in spite of the sheets of icy rain that lashed at him, George could feel the cold spell was breaking up. The rains would wash away the dirty pile of accumulated snow. That's not what I wanted to say with that sentence. The rains would wash away the pain of yesterday. <laughs> Do you know that song? Let the rain wash away all the pain of yesterday. You don't know that song? I'm gonna be honest with you. I don't. I don't. I don't think I do. Whatever. There was a problem living right on the river, though. For such a heavy rainfall could add to the frozen waters and overflow the bulkheads. George came back inside with Harry gratefully shaking himself just in time to hear Danny, still upstairs, cry out in pain. Kathy raced ahead of George up the stairs to their bedroom. Danny stood at the window, the fingers of his right hand trapped under the window. With his left, he was trying to push up the heavy wooden frame. George pushed Kathy aside and ran to the boy who was yelling and trying to pull his fingers free. George tried to slide the window back up, but it refused to bulge. He hammered at the frame, but instead of releasing itself, the window vibrated, only hurting Danny more. In his frustration, George became furious and started to curse, shouting obscenities at his unseen, unknown enemies. Suddenly, the window came free on its own and shot up a few inches, freeing Danny. He grabbed his fingers in his other hand, cradling them and crying hysterically for his mother. Kathy took the injured hand in her own. Danny didn't want to open his fist, and she had to shout at him, Let me see, Danny, open your fist. Averting his eyes, the boy extended his arm. Kathy screamed when she saw what his fingers looked like, all except the thumb were strangely flat. Even more frightened by his mother's anguished cry, Danny jerked his hand away. George exploded. 
running like a madman again from room to room. He screamed invectives, challenging whatever was doing this to his family to come out and fight. There was as much of a storm raging inside 112 Ocean Avenue as outside as Kathy chased after her husband, asking him to call a doctor for Danny. The rage within George soon spent itself. He suddenly became aware that his little boy was hurt and needed medical attention. He ran to the kitchen telephone and tried to call Kathy's family doctor, John Aiello. Well, whatever you say his last name. It's a lot of vowels. (laughs) But the line was dead. As he later learned, the storm had torn down a telephone pole, locking the Lutzes in their house even more effectively. I'll have to drive Danny to the hospital, George shouted. Put his jacket on. The Brunswick Hospital Center is on Broadway in Amityville, no more than a mile from the Lutz's house. Because of the hurricane-force winds raging through the Long Island's south shore, it took George almost 15 minutes to get there. The intern on duty was amazed at the condition of Danny's fingers, which were flattened from the cuticle to the second knuckle. But though they certainly looked crushed beyond repair, they were not broken. No smashed bones or cartilage. He bandaged them securely, gave George some children's aspirin for Danny, and suggested they return home. There was nothing more he could do. By then, the young boy was more frightened from the way his fingers looked than from any pain. While George had drove home, he held his hand stiffly against his chest, sobbing and moaning, and it took George close to 20 minutes to drive back to 112 Ocean Avenue. The winds whipped the front door of the house back against the building, and had and he had trouble trying to close it behind him. Kathy had put Chris and Missy in her own bed and was waiting in the living room. She picked up her eldest and rocked him in her arms. Danny finally cried himself to sleep, exhausted by the grueling pain and fear. George carried Danny up to their bedroom, taking off only the boy's shoes. He slid him under the covers next to the other two children. Then he and Kathy sat down in chairs by the windows and watched the rain smash against the panes. They dozed fitfully all the rest of the night. They had to stay home. It was impossible to try to get to Kathy's mother's or to any other place to sleep, but there, but they were alert to any other dangers that might threaten their children or themselves. Toward dawn, both fell asleep. At 6.30, George was awakened by the rain spattering against his face. For an instant, he thought he was outdoors, but no, he was still inside in his chair by the window. Jumping up, he saw that every window in the room was wide open, some frames torn away from their jams. Then he heard the wind and rain coming through other parts of the house. He rushed out of the bedroom. Every room he went into was in the same condition. The window panes broken, the doors on the second and third floor smashed open, even though everyone had been locked and bolted. All the Lutzes had slept through what, through what must have been a terrible racket. So now it's getting violent. Yeah, because he won't stop. He, I mean, he threatened them. He, he, he told them, he was like, come out and fight me. Like, uh, yeah. And then saying those demons' names, which I probably shouldn't have even read. Probably not. Like. January 11th. The Lutzes had lived at 112 Ocean Ave. Please stop. Why? I don't like that. Why don't you like it? Because I don't like it. The Lutzes had lived at 112 Ocean Ave for 25 days. No? Don't like it? No. Not a fan? Why? Is it creepy or is it just weird? It's annoying. 
Really? <laughs> so I can do a voice like your personality. <laughs> Roasted. Okay. The Lutzes had lived at 112 Ocean Ave for 25 days. That Sunday was one of the worst. In the morning, they discovered that the battering rain and wind of the night before had left the house a complete mess. Rainwater had stained the walls, curtains, furniture, and rugs from the first floor to the third floor. Ten of the windows had broken panes, and several had their locks bent completely out of shape, making it impossible to shut them tightly. The locks to the doors of the sewing room and playroom were twisted and forced out of their metal frames. These couldn't be closed at all. If the family had any intention of leaving for safer quarters, the idea had to be shelved in order to get the house back in shape and secured. That's what it wants. Exactly. Just leave it. Yeah, I'd say, fuck it, I'm out later. Yeah. You got insurance? Shit. In the kitchen, some of the cabinets were soaked and warped. Paint was chipping on the corners of almost every cabinet. Kathy hadn't really thought about these problems yet. She had her hands full of mopping almost an inch of muddy water that accumulated on her tile floor. She hoped she could dry the floor before the tiles peeled loose from the cement backing, which is not how that works. Oh my god. Ceramic tile can be completely submerged in water. Yeah. That's why it's in showers. (laughs) Danny and Chris had two large rolls of paper towels and were going room to room wiping down the walls. When they had to reach beyond their arm's length, they used a little kitchen step ladder. They didn't know their real ladder. Stop it. That one's for Avery. (laughs) (laughs) Missy trailed along with the boys, picking up the wet towels they discarded and throwing them into a large plastic garbage bag. George took down every set of curtains and drapes in the house. Some could be machine washed and those he carried downstairs to the basement laundry. The others that would have to be dry cleaned were put in a pile in the dining room, the driest room in the house. The Lutzes were strangely silent while they worked in the morning and afternoon. These newest disasters had only made them more determined to survive in 112 Ocean Ave. Nobody said it, but George, Kathy, Danny, Chris, and Missy Lutz were now ready to battle any force, natural or unnatural. So they did some laundry together, and now they're ready. If you don't get the hell out of that house... We're going to clean these curtains, and that'll give us the power to fight the demons. <laughs> Dumbasses. What are they going to do, put their encoder rings together? <laughs> I don't know. Even their family's like, let's not talk about this. They're fucking bad shit. Well, apparently, Harry is Even Harry was putting on a show of toughness, going rare. The half-breed Malamute was on his lead in his compound, stalking back and forth through the mud, his tail high, teeth barred, the growls and snarls. And what? Snarls <laughs> that came from the deep within his heavy chest were signs that the dog would tear to shreds the first person or thing he didn't recognize. Every once in a while, Harry would stop his pacing, stare at the boathouse, and let out a wolf-like howl that sent shivers down the spine of everyone who lived in Ocean Ave. When George finished with the sodden curtains, he began to work on the windows. First, he cut heavy plastic sheets to cover the broken panes and sealed them to the window frames with white adhesive tape. It wasn't a pretty sight from the inside or out, but at least it would keep it out a steady falling drizzle. George had guessed right. The temperature had risen with the storm, and it was above freezing. A lot of damage had been done to the trees and bushes along Ocean Ave. And looking up South Ireland Place, George could see that, too... That it, too, 
had its share of broken branches lying on the street. He did note, however, that the neighbors on either side of his house had no broken windows or any other exterior damage. Only me, George thought. Terrific! Well, well if you'd shut the hell up. I'm just going to let you know right now. If a storm is so bad that it is ripping the interior mortise locks on doors off, you just your house would be gone. Yeah. Because it said it ripped the locks off the doors and the windows. Yeah. I don't... They just, they just won't leave. The locks on the windows and doors were a more difficult matter. George didn't have the hardware to replace the catches on the windows, so he used a pair of pliers to twist off the smashed pieces of metal. Then he hammered heavy nails into the edges of the wooden frames and challenged his unseen foes. Let me see you pull those out, you sons of bitches. I swear to God, if he doesn't shut up. He's such an idiot, dude. So stupid. These fucking nails that I just hammered in are totally going to stop him. Not mechanical latches. (laughs) No, yeah, they're totally going to stop nails, considering they just, you know, the fucking wind just knocked everything out. It opened up every window in the house. It wasn't wind. I I know what it, I know. Because if you notice, they haven't talked about any shards of glass inside the house. Yeah, so... They were probably busted outwards. Oh, my God. The locks to the sewing room and playroom doors had been completely removed. In the cellar, he found some one-inch pine boards that were perfect for his needs. The doors opened outward into the hallway, so George nailed the boards diagonally across both. Oh, so it couldn't open. Yeah. For whatever might have remained in the two mysterious rooms, there was no longer a way out. George Kekaris finally telephoned, saying he'd like to come out and spend a night. There was only one problem. Since Kekaris had no equipment with him, the Psychical Research Institute would have to consider a visit, this visit an informal one. He would have to draw conclusions without the rigorous controls required for scientific evaluation. George said that didn't matter. He just wanted a confirmation that all the weird events in the house weren't the product of his and Kathy's imagination. Kekaris asked George whether any, sensi- any sensitives had been there, but George didn't understand what he meant by that term. The field investigator said they would go into that when he came to visit. Before George hung up, Kekarist asked whether there was a dog in the house. George said he had Harry, a trained watchdog. Kekarist said that was good because animals were very sensitive to psychic phenomena. Again, George was puzzled, but at least he had the first tangible evidence that would help that help was on the way. At three in the afternoon, Father Ryan left the chancery in Rockville Center. The chancellor was concerned about Father Mancuso's mental welfare in the Lutz's case, and since one of his duties in the diocese was to minister to the rectories, Father Ryan decided that now would be a good time to visit the Long Island rectory. He found the bearded priest recovering from his third attack of flu in the past three weeks. Father Ryan said he was well aware of how highly the bishop esteemed Father Mancuso as a cleric, but he wanted to know if Father Mancuso thought the reoccurring affliction could be psychosomatic. Wasn't it possible that his emotional state could be influencing his rash, his rash of illnesses? Father Mancuso protested that he was rational, that he still believed that strong evil forces were responsible for his debilitation. He was willing to undergo a psychiatric examination by any one the Chancellor selected. The Chancellor made no further demand that Father Mancuso remain away from 112 Ocean Ave, but stated that the decision would have to be his. Father Mancuso was surprised and frightened. He understood he was being tested. If he did accept responsibility for the Lutzes, he would have the Chancellor's approbation. And if not, 
they would understand. But there was no way he was going to involve himself to that extent, pussy. He was deeply moved by the anxiety and problems that the Lutzes were undergoing, and he could not, in conscience, as a priest, simply excuse his own inherent fear, but he was terrified. Also your job, homie. I know. <clears throat> like, people need your help. And these people obviously trust you. Like, they've trusted you from the beginning. And they've called you over and over again. And you... I, I understand him not going over there because he's sick. But him not going over there out of fear is not... He signed up for it. Exactly. That's that's not okay with me to an extent because it's like, well, yeah, I might, you might be scared, but they're the ones that are living in the house day to day and they want help and they're asking you for help, a qualified fucking professional, and you're not coming out there to help them. Like, that that makes me a little mad in case you can't tell. Yeah, and it's not like some random person like, what people don't understand is you have good and evil. He signed up for the... I'm going to bring people to exactly. God while fighting the devil. you got to remember that the devil's on that, too. Also, Father Mancuso, okay, this is what is killing me about him right now. He's not coming out there to help them because he's fucking scared, right? But then he's getting mad at George and Kathy when they're calling other people and they're they're trying to bless Figure the house themselves, themselves and they're trying to do this and they're trying to do that. It's like, yeah, motherfucker, that's why we're trying to do it because you're not coming out here to help us. If you're not going to come out here to help us, then we're going to fucking figure it out ourselves. But you can't sit there and fucking get mad at them for trying to do something when they're scared. They're the ones living in it every day. You went there one fucking time and now you're fucking scared out of your brains. No. That shit pisses me off. The longer that we've done this story, now I'm getting fucking hype about it. Because that shit makes me mad. Sorry. I'm done. Rant's done. That's good. <laughs> sorry. You want to keep reading now? Or yeah. Like, <laughs> yes, I'm sorry. You were just having a moment. I didn't want to break that up. This father is pissing me off. I know you guys can't see, man, but she was laying in airplanes with them hands. <laughs> <laughs> Father Mancuso finally said that before he made any more decisions in the case, for the Lutzes and for himself, he would like to talk directly to the bishop. Chancellor Ryan recognized the urgency in the priest's request and said he would be in touch with the superior later that day. He would call Father Mancuso that evening. Kathy's mother called her around 6 o'clock, wanting to know if they were coming to her house to spend the night. Kathy took it on herself to say no. The house was still a mess after the storm, and she would have a lot of washing to do the next morning. And besides... Danny and Chris would have school, and they were missing too many days as it was. No shit. <laughs> Miss Connors reluctantly agreed, but made Kathy promise that she would call if anything out of the ordinary occurred. Yeah, because they've told her so much. Like, I know. Like, like... nothing. <laughs> After Kathy hung up, she wondered aloud to George if she had done the right thing. We're going to stick it out, he said. Now I'm going to make him sound like an asshole. We're going to stick it out, he said. Before you send the kids to bed, I'm going to go through the whole house with Harry. Fucking idiot. Kecker has said that dogs are sensitive to things like this. Are you sure you won't make them mad again, Kathy asked? You know what happened when we went around with the crucifix. No, no, Kathy, this is different. I just want to see if Harry can smell or hear anything. Yeah, because the ghosts and the spirits and the demons don't know that dogs can sense them. And normally 
kill the animals in the house first. Yeah, I'm starting to wonder because I I did I don't know if the dog dies. Uh, and what if he does? What are you gonna do then? The dog, still in his aggressive mood, had been kept on his leash. Harry was very powerful, and George had to take a snug grip just to keep from being pulled along. Come on, boy, he said. Sniff me out something. Then they went down to the basement. George removed the leash from Harry's collar, and the dog leaped forward. He circled the cellar, sniffing, sometimes scratching at spots along the bottom of the walls. When the dog came up against the storage closet that hid the red room, Harry again sniffed at the base of the panel. Then his tail dipped between his legs and he sank to his haunches. Harry began to whimper, turning his head to George. What is it, Harry? George asked. You smell something there. Harry's whimpers grew more frantic, and he began to crawl backwards. Then he barked at George, stood up, and ran back up the cellar steps. He waited at the top, quivering until George came up and opened the door for him. What happened? Kathy asked. Harry's afraid to go near the secret hideaway, George told her. He didn't put on the leash again, but walked Harry through the kitchen, dining room, living room, and enclosed porch. The dog's spirits picked up, and he friskily sniffed around each room. But when George tried to take him up the stairs, Harry hung back on the first step of the staircase. Come on, George urged him. What's the matter with you? The dog put one paw on the next step, but he wouldn't move beyond that. I can get him upstairs, Danny shouted. He'll follow me. The boy climbed past the dog and beckoned him. No, Danny. George said. You stay there. You stay here. I'll handle Harry. George reached down and jerked the dog's collar. Harry moved reluctantly, then ran up the steps. The dog walked around freely in both the master's bedroom and the dressing room. Only when he approached Missy's room did Harry hang back. George put <coughs> George put both hands on the dog's haunches and pushed him, but he wouldn't enter the room. Harry behaved the same way in front of the boarded-up sewing room, whimpering and whining with fear. Harry tried to wedge himself behind George. Yeah, this sounds like a great fucking idea. Scare the shit out of the dog. Well, you know, George has had such great ideas so far. Why not involve animal torture at the same time? Fuck, Harry, he said. There isn't anything in there. What's bugging you? Literally there is, homie. You just said five minutes ago, he'll sniff it out. Fucking idiot. As soon as Harry came to the boys' room on the third floor, he jumped up on Chris's bed. George chased him, shooed him out of the room. The dog headed directly for the stairs, passing the playroom without so much as a glance. George couldn't catch up with him. George arrived downstairs behind the dog. What happened? Kathy asked. Nothing happened. That's what. He said. Nothing. What an idiot. The door. The dog was afraid to go in certain rooms, Kathy. That doesn't mean anything. I know. Idiot. Maybe he deserves it. I'm just saying. At this point, he's kind of just fucking beckoning for it. I know. Like, I... Father Mancuso confirmed his appointment with the bishop's secretary. The prelate personally telephoned and suggested that if the priest felt well enough to travel, he should be at the Rockville Center Diocese the following morning. Father Mancuso said that it was only 15 minutes away and his temperature was normal. Though much winds were forecast, the weather promised to remain above freezing. Father Mancuso told the bishop's secretary that all signs pointed to his being there. At the Lutzes, as the day came to a close, the whole family was again in the master bedroom. The three children were in bed, and George and Kathy were sitting up in chairs next to the damaged windows. 
The room seemed overly warm and everyone's eyes had began to sting. George and Kathy thought it was from fatigue. One after another, they drifted off. First Missy and Chris, then Danny, Kathy, and finally George. Within ten minutes, everyone was fast asleep. But very shortly, George was rudely shoved awake by his wife. She and the children were standing in front of his chair, tears in their eyes. What's the matter, he mumbled sleepily. You were screaming, George, Kathy said, and we, would, we couldn't wake you up. Yeah, Daddy, cried Missy. You made Mama cry. Not fully awake, feeling almost drugged, George completely befuddled. Did, did I hurt you, Kathy? Oh, no, honey, she protested. You didn't touch me. What happened then? You kept yelling, I'm coming apart, and we couldn't wake you up. Oh, gosh. <clears throat> okay, so now we're on January 12th, and... I'm going to keep going because it just runs right into from the night before. So, George couldn't understand why did Kathy say he was yelling, I'm coming apart. He knew perfectly well what he had said was, I'm coming unglued. Now he remembered that he had been sitting in the chair when suddenly he felt a powerful grip lift up the chair with him in it and slowly turn him around. Powerless to move, George saw the hooded figure he had first seen in the living room fireplace, its blasted half-face glaring at him. The horribly disfigured feature became clearer to George. God help me, he screamed. Then he saw his own face emerge from beneath the white hood. It was torn in two. I'm coming unglued, George yelled. Now still groggy, he began to argue with Kathy. I know what I said, he muttered. Don't tell me what I said. The others backed off. He's still asleep, Kathy thought, and he's having a bad dream. You're right, George, she said gently. You didn't say that at all. She pulled his head to her breast. Daddy, Missy broke in, come to my room. Jody says he wants to talk to you. Bitch. This bitch. I do not like Missy. The urgency of his daughter's voice broke the spell. George snapped out of it and jumped up, almost bowling Kathy over. Jody? Who's Jody? That's her friend, Kathy answered. You know, I told you she makes up imaginary people. You can't see Jody. Oh, yes, Mama, Missy protested. I see him all the time. He's the biggest pig you ever saw. Then she trotted out of the room and he was gone. And was gone. George and Kathy looked at each other. A pig, he said. It struck them both at the same time. The pig's in her room. George ran after Missy. You stay here, he yelled at Kathy and the boys. Missy was just climbing on the bed when George stopped outside her bedroom door. He didn't see Jody or anything like a pig. Where's this Jody, he asked Missy. He'll be right back, said the little girl, settling the covers around her. He had to go outside for a minute. George let out, a, let out his breath. After the weird dream of the hooded figure, George had expected the worst when he heard the word pig. His neck felt stiff and he rotated it, trying to work out the tight feeling. It's all right, he yelled back to Kathy. Jody's not here. There he is, Daddy. George looked down at Missy. She was pointing to one of her windows. His eyes followed her finger and he started. Staring at him through one of the panes were two fiery red eyes. No face, just the mean little eyes of a pig. That's Jody, cried Missy. He wants to come in. Something rushed past George on his left. It was Kathy, screaming in an unearthly voice. In the same move that it took her to reach the window, she picked up one of Missy's little play chairs and swung it at the pair of eyes. Her blow shattered the window, and shards of glass flew back on top of her. 
There was an animal cry of pain, a loud squealing, and the eyes were gone. George rushed to what was left of the second-story window and looked out. He saw nothing below, but he still heard the squealing. It sounded as if it was headed for the boathouse. Then Kathy's crying whimper caught George's attention. He turned to his wife. Kathy was Kathy's face was terrifying. Her eyes were wild and her mouth was tightly screwed up. She was trying to choke out words. Finally, she blurted out, It's been here all the time. I wanted to kill it. I wanted to kill it. Then her whole body slumped. George caught his wife and silently picked her up. He carried Kathy into their bedroom, Danny and Chris following. Only Chris saw his little sister get out of the bed, go to the smashed window, and wave. Missy turned away only when George called her to come into his bedroom. In the morning, while Kathy and George were still dozing in their chairs, the children asleep in their big bed, Father Mancuso bundled up and drove to Rockville Center. He shivered in the cold, nippy air. Father Mancuso hadn't been outside too often since winter started, and after the ride, he felt a little giddy. He was grateful when the bishop's secretary offered him tea. The young priest often spoke with Father Mancuso, and he admired the older priest's legalistic mind. They chatted until the bishop buzzed. The meeting was brief, all too short for what Father Mancuso had in mind. The prelate, a venerable, white-haired cleric, was a moralist of national reputation. He had the chancellor's file on the Lutz case on his desk, but to Father Mancuso's surprise, he viewed the report with reluctance and caution. The bishop was firm about the priest dissociating himself from the Lutzes and said he already assigned another cleric to pick up the investigation. Father Mancuso had nothing to say. Possibly you should see a psychiatrist, the bishop continued. At that, Father Mancuso became upset. I will if I may choose my own. The bishop read the displeasure in his visitor's manner and his voice softened. Look, Frank, he said. I'm doing this for your benefit. You've become obsessed with the idea that demonic influence is involved. I get the impression that a good deal of it centers around you personally. That may or may not be. Standing up, the bishop walked around his desk to Father Mancuso's chair and put his hand on the priest's shoulder. Let someone else pick up the burden, he said. It's affecting your health. I've got too much for you to do here. I don't want to lose you. You do understand, Father. On Monday morning, Kathy was determined that Danny and Chris go to school. Ready to fly apart herself, she stiffened her backbone and did, it, did her duty as a mother. While George slept on, she awakened the boys, fed them breakfast, and took all three children with her, with her in the van. George was up when she returned with Missy. As she had coffee with him, Kathy realized he was still in a zombie-like state after the previous night's affair. For the moment, Kathy was determined to be strong for both of them. She talked to her husband in everyday terms, slipping in the reminder that he had to fix the smashed window in Missy's bedroom. Later, there would be time to deal with the decision of moving from 112 Ocean Avenue. I'm glad they're putting it off till later. Again. <laughs> I mean, they've had like a stellar track record so far. So. I mean, yeah, no. Upstairs, George had just nailed plywood over, over the shattered window frame to protect the room from damage by the weather when Kathy called up from the kitchen that his office in Syaset wanted him on the telephone. The company's accountant reminded George that the internal revenue agent was due to come by at noon. Not wanting to leave the house, George asked the accountant to handle the tax situation himself, but the man refused. 
It was George's responsibility to determine how to pay the taxes. George hesitated, certain that something would happen if he left, but Kathy signaled that he should go. After he hung up, Kathy said that the appointment shouldn't take too long. She and Missy would be all right while he was gone. She would call a glazier. I don't know what that is. She would call a glazier in Amityville to drive over and fix the broken panes in Missy's window and throughout the house. Uh, a glazier is a window repairman? Oh. You ever heard of, like, glazing a window? No. Don't worry about it. Okay. He he professionally cuts and installs windows. Oh, okay. Meekly, George nodded at his wife's advice and then left for Syaset. Neither had mentioned Jody's name. While Kathy was giving Missy her lunch, George Kikoris called. He was sorry he hadn't been able to get there as he'd promised George, but said he felt he'd picked up the flu in Buffalo. Kekaris' bout of illness had forced him to cancel all his appointments for the Psychical Research Institute. He was sure that he'd be fine by the following day, however, and planned to stay at the Lutz's Wednesday night. Kathy half listened to this explanation. She was watching Missy eat. The little girl seemed to be having a secret conversation with someone under the kitchen table. Every once in a while, Missy would extend her hand beneath the plastic tablecloth to offer peanut butter and jelly to offer her peanut butter and jelly sandwich. She didn't seem to be aware that her mother was watching her movements. From her position, Kathy could see nothing was under the table, but she did not want to ask her but she did want to ask her daughter about Jody. Finally, Kakoras was finished and she hung up. Missy, Kathy said, sitting down at the table, is Jody the angel you told me about? The little girl looked at her mother, confusion on her face. You remember, Kathy continued, you asked me if angels speak. Missy's eyes lit up. Yes, Mama, she nodded. Jody's an angel. He talks to me all the time. I don't understand. You've seen pictures of angels. You saw the ones we had on the Christmas tree? Missy nodded again. You said he's a pig. So how can you say he's an angel? Missy's eyebrows grew together as she con- as she concentrated. He says he is, Mama. She nodded her head several times. He told me. Kathy hitched her chair closer to Missy. What does he say when he talks to you? Again, the little girl seemed confused. You know what I mean, Missy? Kathy pressed her daughter. Do you play games? Oh, no, Missy shook her head. He tells me about the little boy who used to live in my room. She looked around to see if anybody was listening. He died, Mama, she whispered. The little boy got sick and he died. I see, Kathy said. What else did he tell you? The little girl thought for a moment. Last night, he said I was going to live here forever so I could play with the little boy. Horrified, Kathy put a finger to her mouth because she wanted to scream. George's session with the IRS had not gone well. Go figure. You've been avoiding them. The agent had disallowed deduction after deduction, and George's only hope lay in the appeal the agent said he could file. It was a temporary reprieve, at least. After the man left, George called Kathy to say he picked the boys up at school on his way home. When he arrived there, when he arrived after three, Kathy and Missy had their coats on. Don't undress, George, she said. We're leaving for my mother's right now. George and the two boys looked at her. What happened? He asked. Jody told Missy he's an angel. That's what happened. She began to push the, do- push the boys out the front door. We're getting out of here. George held up his hands. Wait a minute, will you? What do you mean he's an angel? 
Kathy looked down at her daughter. Missy, tell your father what the pig said. (laughs) My God. She's so over the fucking pig. I know. The little girl nodded. He said he's an angel, Daddy. He told me. George was about to ask his daughter another question when he was interrupted by loud barking from behind the house. Harry, he cried. We forgot about Harry. When George and the others reached him, Harry was barking furiously at the boathouse, frantically running around his compound and jerking up short every time he reached the end of his steel leash. What's the matter, boy? George said, patting the dog's neck. Someone in the boathouse? Harry twisted out of his grasp. Don't go in there, Kathy yelled. Please, let's get out of here now. George hesitated, then bent down and snapped the leash off Harry's collar. The dog leaped forward with a savage, snar- a savage snarl and ran out of his gate. The door to the boathouse was closed, and the best Harry could do was leap against it. Again, he started his wild barking. George was all set to unlock the door and fling it open. Instead, Danny and Chris ran past him and leaped on Harry, wrestling the big dog away. Don't let him go in there, Danny screamed. He'll get killed. George grabbed Harry's collar and helped him pull down to a sitting position. It's all right, Chris kept assuring the powerful, agitated animal. It's all right, boy, but Harry would not be calmed. Let's get him inside the house, George panted. If he can't see the boathouse, he'll stop. As he and the boys were drawing Harry into the house, a van pulled into the driveway. George saw that it was a window repairman. He and Kathy looked at one another. Oh, my God, Kathy said. I forgot all about having called him. They hadn't reckoned on this kind of delay. His pudgy face and broad accent gave away his Slavic descent. I figured you folks need fixing right away, he said. What with the bad weather we've been having? Yeah, he continued as he opened his rear doors. Better to fix now. If everything inside get wet because of outside... You have to use a strong (laughs) Slavic accent. I can't do it. (laughs) You have to. Okay, so you just... You read. You do. Where's it at? Just do his pudgy face and broad accent. His pudgy face and broad accent gave way his Slavic descent. I figured you folks need the fixing right away, he said. What with the bad weather we've been having, yeah? (laughs) You might as well keep going and finish it. He continued as he opened the rear doors. Better to fix now. If everything inside gets wet because of outside, it costs you more money. Okay, that's fine, George said. Come on in and I'll show you the windows that got busted. The window the other night, yeah? The man asked. Yeah, the wind, George answered. It was almost 6 p.m. before the man was done. When the new window panes were scraped free of putty, he stepped back to admire his work. I'm sorry, he said to George. Oh. I am sorry, he said to George. I could not fix window in little girl's room. You need carpenter first. He gathered up his tools. You get him, then I come back, yeah? Yeah, George nodded. We'll get him and you can come back. He reached into his pants pocket. How much do I owe you? No, no. The man protested. No money now. Your neighbor. We send the bill, okay? Okay, George said, relieved. His cash was very low at the moment. Somehow the glazier's kindness and friendliness left its mark on their spirits that night. After he left, Kathy, who had been sitting in the kitchen with her coat on all the time he worked, suddenly got up and took it off. Without saying a word to George, she began to prepare supper. I'm not too hungry, George said. A grilled cheese sandwich would do just fine. 
Kathy took out hamburger meat for herself and the children. As she worked preparing the meal, she kept Danny and Chris with her in the kitchen, insisting they do their homework in the nook. Missy sat in the living room with George, watching television while he built up a fire. The glazier had been just the reassurance they needed. After all, nothing had happened to him while he was in the playroom or the sewing room. The Lutzes realized that maybe their imaginations were too fired up and they were panicking unnecessarily. I swear to God, don't fucking backpedal on this. Spoiler alert, they backpedal. <laughs> All thought of abandoning their home had momentarily disappeared. There's your backpedal. Oh my God. <laughs> Father May. <laughs> you know what will save us? New windows. Stop. <laughs> Father Mancuso was an individual who despised bullies, be they man, animal, or the unknown. The priest felt that the force that had 112 Ocean Avenue in its grip was taking undue advantage of the fears of the Lutzes and of himself. Before he retired Tuesday night, Father Mancuso prayed that this evil force could somehow be reasoned with, that it should know what it was doing was totally insane. How could it derive pleasure from pain, he asked himself. The priest knew there was only one answer. It had to be demonic. Just to be on the safe side, George and Kathy decided the children should sleep in the master bedroom again. With Harry inside, down in the cellar. Why is the dog in the cellar again? Because George is a dumbass. My God. Danny, Chris, and Missy were put to bed. George and Kathy made themselves as comfortable as they could. Kathy stretched out on two chairs. George insisted he was all right with one. He told Kathy he planned to stay awake all night and sleep in the morning. At 3.15 a.m., George heard the marching band strike up downstairs. This time, he did not go to investigate. He told himself it was all in his head, and when he went down, there would be nothing to see. So he sat there, watching Kathy and the children, listening as the musicians paraded up and down his living room, horns and drums blasting away loud enough to be heard half a mile away. All during the maddening performance, Kathy and the children did not awaken. Finally, George must have dozed off in his chair because Kathy awoke to hear him screaming. He was yelling in two different tongues, languages she had never heard before. She ran to her husband's chair on the other side of the ta- on the other side of the bed to shake him out of his dream. George began groaning when when Kathy touched him, he cried out in a completely different voice. It's in Chris's room. It's in Chris's room. It's in Chris's room. God. So do you think when he came up, he was like, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. My God. Or do you think he was like way more demonic than that? Probably. I don't know. I'm just saying, man. But listen, now he's speaking in tongues. So, mm-mm. He, listen. I mean, some people do that in church. Yeah, like crazy churches. <laughs> Rude. <laughs> Rude. So, no, the people that do the voices are, I think it's Primitive Baptists, or it's some form of that. I don't know. They like handle snakes and speak in tongues and stuff like that. I don't, I feel like that's. I forget the. I know. Actual I, I, I want to say like Episcopalian, but I know that's Episcopalian, but I know that's not. No, right. that's totally not right. Churches that handle snakes. That handle snakes. Snake handling. What churches practice? Church of God with signs following or other holiness churches. Protestants. 
It says, are there still snake handling churches? Most religious snake handlers are still found in the Appalachian Mountains. <laughs> That's nice. And other oh, parts yeah. of the southeastern United States, especially in Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, Kentucky, North Carolina, uh -huh. Tennessee, West Virginia, and South Carolina. Wow. That's what we get for being in the Bible Belt, though. So, Well, I mean, they... The reason why they handle the snakes is because while they're worshiping, they said God will protect them. They knew they used to use venomous snakes. I don't think legally they can anymore. Well, you imagine a bunch of people like moonshiners and shit, like in the Appalachian Mountains, <laughs> rocking copperheads in church. <laughs> they're just crazy. Like yeah, it's their religion. There was that movie. What is it? The Devil Inside. Yeah. The Devil in All of Us, something like that. The Devil like Inside, is a, that's a movie. No, it had the dude from Twilight in it. Robert Pattinson? That guy. And he played a pastor who impregnated like a 14-year-old. God, I know what movie you're talking about. What is it called? And then the, the, the two brothers were also pastors, and they were like traveling or whatever. Oh, shit. And uh, he handled spiders, and the spider bit him. And he turned into Spider-Man? No. <laughs> He got like these leashes, like these, like, you know, it was a poisonous spider or whatever, and it, it messed him up pretty bad. And then he was like, God's testing me, and then he killed his wife and thought that was God was going to give him the power to bring her back to life. Was it a horror movie? I think it was like one of those, like. The Devil All the Time. That's the what Devil it is. All the Time. That's what it's called. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I just yeah. It's like it one up. of those psychological thrillers. I, was, I just looked up Robert Pattinson horror movie. <laughs> that was the first one. The but Devil yeah, spoiler alert if nobody's seen the movie, it's mediocre at best. Yeah. But. The only scene that has reminds me of... I think it's of, on Netflix, or it was. Is he goes out, he stabs his wife to death, and then goes, God has given me the power to raise this woman, and puts his hands on her, and then nothing happens. And his brother's like, hey man, I told you it wasn't going to work, dumbass. Oh my god. We should just bury her and not talk about it. Oh my god. Yeah. Because he thought that because he got bit by a poisonous spider... That that was God testing him, and he should kill his wife and try to resurrect her because he had that much power. Wow. And I think it is supposed to be based in the Appalachian Mountains. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure. I mean, obviously, that I just didn't think that there were still like that type mm -hmm. of churches. Oh, for sure. I don't. And this is why I stopped going to a Baptist church because <laughs> they're crazy. Call them crazy. It's they rude. Keep. Well, it's, okay, they're weird. Is that better? Three All right, days. we're on January 13th. George is positive he wasn't dreaming. From his position, he was sure he could see clear to the boys, bed, the boys' bedroom on the third floor. He had been watching a shadowy figure approach Chris's bed. He tried to rush to his sleeping son's side and grab him away from the menacing shape, but George couldn't get up from his chair. He was pinned to the seat by a firm hand on his shoulder. It was a struggle George knew he couldn't win. The shadow hovered over Chris. George helpless shouted, It's in Chris's room. No one heard him. It's in Chris's room, he repeated. Then the pressure on his shoulders lifted and George felt himself being pushed. His arms came free and he could see Chris was out of bed, wrapped inside the dark shape. George swung his hands wildly about, again screaming, It's in Chris's room. He felt another violent push. George! His eyes snapped open. Kathy was leaning over him, pushing at his chest. George, she cried, wake up. He leaped from his chair. It's got Chris, he yelled. I've got to get up there. Kathy grabbed his arm. No, 
She was pulling him back. You're dreaming. Chris is here. She pointed to their bed. The three children were under the covers, awakened by George's shouting. They were now watching their parents. George was still agitated. I wasn't dreaming, I tell you, he insisted. I could see it picked him up and... You couldn't have, Kathy interrupted. He's been in bed all the time. He's been here in bed all the time. No, Mama. I had to go to the bathroom before. Chris sat up. You and Daddy were asleep. I never heard you. Did you use my bathroom? Kathy asked. Uh Uh-uh. The door was locked, so I went upstairs. George went to the bathroom. The door was locked. Upstairs? asked Kathy. Yeah, Chris answered. But I got scared. Why? his father asked. Because I could look through the floor and see you, Daddy. The Lutzes remained awake for the rest of the night. Only Missy fell back asleep. In the morning, George called Father Mancuso. You know why Missy fell back asleep? Because she's fucking crazy. You know. Minutes before, Father Mancuso had come to a decision. His anguish over the Lutzes' children and their safety had overcome his fear. Feeling he had been a coward long enough, good on him, Father Mancuso has was now resolved to return to the bishop and asked to be allowed to the co- continue communicating with George. He showered for the first time in days, then prepared to shave. As he was plugging in the electric razor, Father Mancuso gasped. Beneath his eyes were the same black circles he had first seen at his mother's. The telephone rang at that very moment. Even though he answered the telephone, the priest knew who was calling. Yes, George, he said. George was too preoccupied to notice that Father Mancuso had anticipated him. He announced that he and Kathy had decided to take the Chancellor's advice and leave 112 Ocean Ave. They were going to his mother's in law, his mother-in-law's until George could get some kind of investigation going. Too many incidences were beginning to involve the children, and George felt that if he delayed any longer, Danny, Chris, and Missy might be in frightful danger. The priest did not ask what kind of incidences, nor did he mention the reappearance of circles under his eyes. He readily agreed the children's welfare should be everyone's prime concern, and that George was right about going. Let whatever's there have the place, he said. Just go. Danny and Chris did not go to school in Amityville that morning. Kathy kept them home again because she wanted to pack as soon as possible. George said they'd leave as soon as he called the police to tell them the family would be away for a while. He also wanted them to have Mrs... Connor's telephone number in case of any emergency, but when he picked up the phone to dial the police department, the line was dead. When her husband told Kathy the phone was out of order, she became extremely nervous. Hurriedly, she dressed the children and then, without taking a change of clothes, hurried them out to the van. George brought Harry from the cellar and put him in the rear of the van. Then he went around the house and checked to make sure all the doors were locked. Finishing with the boathouse, George climbed behind the wheel of the van. He turned the ignition key, but the motor wouldn't turn over. George, Kathy's voice quivered, what's wrong? Take it easy, he said. We got enough gas. Let me take a look under the hood. See, they shouldn't have said that. They I bet were he's going to open it and go, yep, there's an engine. Oh, my God. As he got out of the van, he looked up at the sky. The clouds had grown dark and menacing. George felt a cold wind picking up. By the time he lifted the hood, the first raindrops were hitting the windshield. George never got a good look at what could have caused the van to stall. A huge gust of wind blew in from Amityville River in the back of the house, and the hood was slammed down. George had just leaped aside to avoid the falling metal when the lightning bolt struck behind the garage. The clap of thunder was almost instantaneous, and the clouds broke into a solid sheet of water that drenched George immediately. He ran for the front door and unlocked it. Get in, 
he shouted to his family in the van. Kathy and the children bolted for the open door, but by the time he managed to close it behind them, they were all soaking wet. We're trapped, he thought to himself, not daring to voice the thought to Kathy. It's not going to let us go. See, at that point, the van goes in neutral. Mm-hmm. It gets pushed. Right. Off the property. Yeah. And then we will mosey on down the fucking road. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just I saying. If not, fuck that van. Have somebody come get you. Yeah. I'd stay in the van. I would not go back in the house. Mm-mm. The rains and wind picked up in- intense. The rains and wind picked up in intensity, and by 1 o'clock in the afternoon, Amityville was hit by another storm of hurricane strength. At 3, the electricity went out, but fortunately, the heat remained in the house. George switched on the portable radio in the kitchen. The weather report said it was 20 degrees and that sleet was pelting all of Long Island. Since the radar showed an enormous low-pressure system covering the entire metropolitan area, the weatherman could not predict when the storm would subside. George dealt with Missy's broken window as best he could, shoving towels into spaces where it hung away from the frame, then nailing an old blanket over the entire window. Before he had finished, his fresh dry clothes were soaked again. In the kitchen, George looked at the thermostat that hung beside the back door. It read 80 degrees, and the house was getting uncomfortably warm. He knew that with the electricity off, the the oil burner's thermostat wouldn't operate. Wait, so why is their house getting hotter? Because the oil furnace is on. Oh. But when George looked again at the thermostat, it was up to 85 degrees. So the problem with this. Yes. The problem with this. Yes. (laughs) With the year of this house. Yes. It probably has an older style thermostat. Okay. And it would have shut off. Okay. Because see, like now our houses get cold when we don't have power. Even if you had a gas furnace Mm -hmm. or an oil furnace, Mm -hmm. you're going to have heat. And they know that. Hey, yeah, the thermostat mainly controls it, but there's going to be a manual, and when it reaches a certain temperature, it's going to cut off. It's not going to sit there and go, all right, I'm starting a fire, whoosh. That's yeah. That's not how it works. And I feel like 85 degrees is a little too high for it to be like... Well, you got to think, so the, the supply temperature coming out of a furnace is probably right around, I don't know, 130 degrees. Mm-hmm. When do, when do you think it should shut off, though? Depends on what they have it set at, but there should be another... Th- an electronic thermostat, you might have one, but there's going to be a secondary on that type of furnace because it can still kick on without electricity. Right. Some of them. I'm just... As, I'm assuming this based on the year that this house was built because it's OG. Yeah. I'm, I'm imagining it has an older style type of thermostat. Oh, Okay. Well, that's, I mean, it's still weird, but. To cool the house off, George had to have some fresh air. He inched open the windows on the enclosed porch, the only room that faced away from the storm's main onslaught. From the time the storm broke, it had remained dark outside, and even though it was daytime, Kathy had lit candles. At 4.30, it was as if night had already settled over 112 Ocean Ave. Every once in a while, she would pick up the telephone to see if it was working again. But she really had little hope that it would be. The storm would prevent any repair crews from going out on call. The children weren't phased at all by the darkness. They treated the whole affair as a holiday, noisily running up and down the staircase, playing hide-and-seek. Since the boys were much better at hiding themselves, Missy was usually it. 
Harry happily joined into the romping, finally irritating George to the point where he cuffed the dog with a newspaper. Harry ran off and hid behind Kathy. By six in the evening, the storm still hadn't slackened. It was as though all the water in the world was being dumped on top of 112 Ocean Ave, and inside the house, the temperature was up to 90 degrees. George went to the basement to look at the oil burner. It was off. But it didn't matter. The heat continued to rise in all the rooms except for Missy's. Desperate? Maybe Missy's the devil. (laughs) Fair enough. Desperate, he decided to make a final appeal to God. Holding a candle, George began going from room to room, asking the Lord to send away whoever didn't belong there. He felt mildly reassured when there was no sinister reaction to his prayers. After the playroom door had been damaged during the first storm, George had removed the lock. Now as he approached the room to recite his appeal to God, he saw the green slime was back, leaking from the open hole in the door and oozing onto the floor into the hallway. George watched as the pool of jelly-like substance slowly wound its way towards the staircase. He pulled off the pine boards nailed across the door and threw it open, half expecting to find a room filled with the slime material, but its only source to be an empty lock hole in the door. George gathered some towels from the third-floor bathroom and stuffed them into the opening. The towels soon became saturated, but the jelly stopped flowing. He wiped up the slime that had accumulated in the hallway and had managed to flow down the steps. George had no intention of telling his wife about his latest discovery. All the time her husband was going through the house, Kathy sat by the telephone. She had tried opening the kitchen door a little to let some air in, but... Even when it was only slightly ajar, rainwater showered into the room. She began to doze from the oppressive heat. When George finally returned to the kitchen, she was almost fast asleep, resting her head on her arms on the breakfast table in the nook. Kathy was perspiring, the back of her neck damp to the touch. When he tried to awaken her, she lifted her head slightly, mumbled something. When he tried to awaken her, she lifted her head slightly, mumbled something he couldn't understand, then let her forehead fall back on her arms. George had no need to check whether the rain and windstorm had let up. Torrents of water were still smashing against the house, and he somehow knew they wouldn't be allowed to leave 112 Ocean Avenue that night. He picked Kathy up in his arms and took her to the bedroom, noting the time in the kitchen clock. It was exactly 8 p.m. Finally, the 90-degree heat got to Danny, Chris, and Missy. Their running about the house most of the day had worn them out, so shortly after George had taken Kathy upstairs, they were ready for bed. George was surprised to find it was somewhat cooler in the boys' room on the third floor. He knew that hot air rises, and on top floor it should have been well above 90. Missy sleepily climbed into bed beside Kathy, but refused to be covered with a sheet or blanket. Before George went back downstairs, she and the boys were asleep. George and Harry were now all alone in the living room. For a change, the dog didn't seem to be about to fall asleep early, but watched his owner's every move. He, too, was suffering from the excessive heat. When George rose from his chair to go into another room, Harry would not follow, but remained stretched out on the cool draft beneath the living room windows. George thought of running outside to the van to see if it would start. It was still standing in the driveway, and George knew its engine would probably be wet by now. But the real deterrent was George's suspicion that once he left, he might not be able to get back in the house. Something within him warned him that he'd never get to the front door or kitchen door open again. Suddenly, at 10 o'clock, the 90-degree heat began to break. Harry noticed it first. The dog stood, sniffed the air, 
then walked over to the unlit fireplace where George was sitting and whimpered. His pathetic sounds broke his master's concentration on the van. George looked up and shivered. There was a definite drop in the house's temperature. A half hour later, the thermostat read 60 degrees. George started for the basement to get some logs. Harry trotted along behind him to the cellar door, but would not descend the steps with George. He remained in the open doorway, constantly turning his head as if to see if somebody was coming up behind him. George used his flashlight to search out every corner of the basement, but there were no signs of anything unusual. With several logs in his arms, George climbed back upstairs and tried to telephone in the kitchen. It was still dead. He was all set to relight the kindling wood in the fireplace when he thought he heard Missy cry out. When he reached his bedroom, the little girl was shivering. He had forgotten to cover her when the house got chilly. Kathy on her stomach was sleeping like a drugged person, not moving or turning in bed. George also tucked blankets about his wife's cool body. When he finally went back down to the living room, George decided not to make a fire. He wanted to be free to stay near Kathy and the children. Tonight, he thought, I'd better be ready for anything. George put on Harry's long metal leash and took the dog up to the master bedroom. He left the door open, but knotted the leash so that Harry blocked the doorway completely. Then George kicked off his shoes and, without undressing, slid into bed beside Missy and Kathy. Rather than lie down, he sat up with his back resting against the headboard. At one o'clock, George felt he was freezing. Because of the noise of the raging storm outside, he knew there was no hope of heat in the house that night from the oil burner. He began to weep to himself about the sorry plight he and his family were in. He now realized he should have fled when Father Mancuso originally warned him. Oh, God, help us, he moaned. Suddenly, Kathy lifted up her head. While he watched, she got off the bed, turned to look into the mirror under the wall. George saw in the candlelight that her eyes were open, but he knew she was still asleep. Kathy stared at her reflection for a moment, then turned away from the mirror wall and started for the bedroom door. But she stopped when she came to an obstacle. Harry was fast asleep, stretched across the threshold, blocking her path. George leaped from the bed and seized his wife. Kathy looked at him with unseeing eyes. To George, she seemed to be in a trance. Kathy, he cried, wake up. When George shook her, there was no response or reaction. Then her eyes closed. Kathy went limp in his arms, and gently he half-pulled, half-lifted her back to the bed. First, he sat Kathy down, then straightened her legs so that she was lying flat. Her trance-like state seemed to affect her whole body. She was like a rag doll. George noted that Missy in the middle of the bed had slept through the whole episode, but then his attention was diverted by a, mo by a movement in the door. He saw Harry struggle to his feet, shake violently, and then begin to retch. The dog threw up all over the floor, but kept gagging and trying to force out something that seemed to be stuck in his throat. Restricted by his leash, the poor dog was only twisting in the chain more tightly about his retching body. The odor of vomit caused George to gag too. He fled into the bathroom, gulped a mouth of water, took a deep breath, and came out with towels from the rack. After he mopped up the floor, George untied Harry and set the dog free. Harry looked up at George, wagged his tail several times, then stretched himself out on the floor in the hallway, closing his eyes. There's not much wrong with you now, George whispered under his breath. He listened, but everything was quiet throughout the house. Much too quiet. In a, in a few moments, George realized the storm had stopped. There was no rain, no wind. The stillness was so complete, it was as though someone had turned off running water in a sink. There was a vacuum of silence at 112 Ocean Ave. 
With the storm gone, the temperature outside began to drop, and in a very short time, the house became ice cold. George could feel the bedroom become even chillier than it had been. He still had all his clothes on when he slipped back beneath the covers. There was a noise above George's head. He looked up and listened. Something was scraping along the floor in the boys' room. The noise became louder, and George could tell the movement was faster. The boys' beds were sliding back and forth. George managed to throw off his covers, but he could not lift his body out of bed. There was no pressure, as there had been before when he sat in the bedroom chair. George just didn't have the strength to move. Now he heard the dresser drawers now he heard the dresser drawers across his room begin to open and close. A candle was still on his nightstand, and he could make out the drawers rapidly sliding back and forth. One drawer would fly open, then another, then the first would bang shut. Tears of frustration and fear flooded George's eyes. Almost immediately after that, the voices began. He could hear them downstairs, but couldn't make out what was being said. He only knew that it sounded as if a lot of people were thronging on the first floor. George's head began to roll as he tried to reach over and touch Missy or Kathy. Then the marching band struck up downstairs, its music drowning out the unintelligible voices. George thought he must be in a madhouse. He could distinctly hear musicians parade around the entire first floor, and then their first steps as they began to mount the staircase. George was screaming now, but he heard no sounds coming from his throat. His body whipped back and forth on the bed, and he could feel the terrible strain on his neck muscles as he vainly tried to lift his head from the mattress. Finally, George gave up. He realized the mattress was soaking wet. The beds were banging around above George's head, and the dresser drawers in his room were flying back and forth, and the band headed up the steps to the second floor. But that was not all. Despite all the noises, George now heard the doors throughout the house beginning to slam back and forth. He saw the door to the bedroom swing wildly as though someone were yanking it open and then immediately slamming it shut. George could also see Harry lying outside in the hallway, completely undisturbed by the racket. Either the dog is drugged, George thought, or I'm the one who's going mad. A terrible, blinding flash of lightning lit up the bedroom. George heard the thunderbolt strike somewhere close outside. Then there was a smashing blow that shook the entire house. The storm was back, with torrents of rain and wind lashing 112 Ocean Ave from top to bottom. George lay there panting, his heart thumping loudly in his chest. He was waiting, knowing something else was about to happen. Then George let out a horrible, silent scream. Somebody was on the bed with him. He felt himself being stepped on. Strong, heavy feet struck his legs and body. George shut his eyes. He could feel the pain from the blows. Oh God, he thought. They're hooves. It's an animal. George must have passed out from the fright because the next thing he remembered was the sight of Danny and Chris standing behind his bed. Beside his bed. Daddy, Daddy, wake up. They're crying. There's something in our room. He blinked his eyes. In a glance, he saw it was light outside. The storm had stopped. The dresser drawers were all open and his two sons were pleading with him to get up. Missy? Kathy? George turned to look at them. They were still next to him, both still sound asleep. He turned back to the boys who were trying to pull him out of bed. What's the matter, he asked. What's in your room? It's a monster, Danny cried. He doesn't even have a face. It tried to grab us, Chris broke in, but we ran away. Come on, Daddy, get up. George tried. He almost got his head off the mattress when he heard Harry bark furiously. George looked past the boys through the open doorway. The dog was standing in the hallway, snarling and growling at the staircase. 
even though he was unleashed, Harry did not head for the stairs, but continued to crouch in the hallway, teeth bared, barking at someone or something George couldn't see from his position in bed. With a tremendous burst of determination, George finally heaved his whole body off the mattress. He arose so suddenly that he had crashed into Danny and Chris. Then he ran for the open door and looked up at the steps. On the top step stood a gigantic figure in white. George knew it was the hooded image Kathy had first glimpsed in the fireplace. The being was pointing at him. George whirled and raced back into the bedroom, grabbed up Missy, shoved her into Danny's arms. Take her outside, he shouted. You go with him, Chris. Then he bent over Kathy and lifted her off the bed. Hurry, George yelled after the boys. Then he too ran from the room, Harry following him down the steps. On the first floor, George saw the front door was open, hanging from its hinges again, torn away by some powerful force. Danny, Chris, and Missy were outside. The little girl, just awakened, was squirming in her brother's arms, not knowing where she was, and she started to cry with fright. George ran from the van. He put Kathy in the front seat and then helped the children into the rear. Harry jumped in behind them. He slammed the door on Kathy's side. George ran around to the other side of the vehicle, jumped in the driver's seat, and prayed. He jammed in the ignition key. The motor turned over immediately. Spraying wet gravel, George backed out of the driveway. When he hit the street, he skidded, spun the wheel, and stepped on the gas at the same time. The van teetered for a moment. Then all four tires grabbed, and smoke shot up from the rubber treads. In another instant, the van was tearing up Ocean Ave. As he steered the van towards safety, George looked into the side-view mirror. His house was fast disappearing His sight, from his sight. Thank God, he muttered to himself. I'll never see you again, you son of a bitch. It was 7 o'clock on the morning of January 14, 1976, the 28th day the Lutzes had lived in 112 Ocean Ave. Okay, so now we're on January 15th. This is the last chapter. That morning, at that very moment, the Lutzes were fleeing from their home, Father Mancuso decided to get out of town. He waited until 11 o'clock because then it would be 8 a.m. in San Francisco, and he didn't want to awaken his cousin too early with a telephone call. The priest announced he was flying west for, the va- for a vacation. He would leave in a day or so, probably on Friday, January 16th. Father Mancuso hung up, feeling greatly relieved. This was the first positive step he'd taken in weeks. The priest reasoned that a week in the California sun could only help his rundown condition and possibly bake the flu out of his system. Let the diabolical powers in 112 Ocean Avenue have the house and the cruel New York winter weather. He called his office back at the diocese in order to inform them of his plans. They were to reschedule his appointments and duties until after January 30th. He would contact some of his clients in counseling on his own. As the morning wore on, the priest felt progressively better. He had much to do before leaving, and all of his thoughts of the Lutzes were shunted into the background. But at four in the afternoon, George Lutz called from his mother-in-law's in East Babylon. He said he wanted to let Father Mancuso know that he, Kathy, and the children were going to stay there until the scientific investigations were made at his house in Amityville. That's fine, George, Father Mancuso said, but be careful who goes into the house. Don't make a circus out of this thing. Oh, I won't, Father, George replied. We don't want people trampling all over the place. All our stuff is still there. Nobody gets in unless I say so. Good, the priest said. Just follow up on the parapsychologist. 
The Chancery says they're the best equipped to investigate a situation like this. There's just one thing, George broke in. Supposing they can't come up with the answers, and after last night, Father, I frankly don't think they can. Then what? What happens next? Father Mancuso let out a gasp. What do you mean, after last night? Don't tell me you stayed there again. There was a silence on the telephone. Finally, George answered. It wouldn't let us go. We couldn't get out until this morning. Father Mancuso felt his palms itch. He looked into his left hand. It was becoming blotchy. Oh no, he thought. Please God, not again, no more. Without another word to George, the priest hung up. He shoved his hand crossways beneath his armpits, trying to shield them. He began to rock back and forth on his heels. Please, please, he whimpered. Let me alone. I promise I won't talk to him again. The picture. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so in the book, there's a picture that Missy had drawn of Jody playing in the snow. It's Jody running through the snow. It's, yeah. It's pretty weird. I mean. It's a, it's a sketchy. It's, it's, it's a, like one of those drawings you'd see like in an insane asylum. <laughs> it's a child's drawing, yeah. <laughs> George couldn't understand why Father Mancuso had hung up on him. The priest should have been happy that they were out of the house. He held the receiver in his hand, staring at the instrument. What did I say? He murmured. A sharp tug on his sleeve interrupted George's thoughts. It was Missy. Here, Daddy, she said. I made Jody like you. Oh, I made Jody like you said. What? George asked. His daughter was holding up a paper drawing. Oh, yeah, he said. Jody's picture. Let me see it. George took the paper from Missy. It was a child's rendering of a pig, distorted, but clearly a five-year-old's idea of a running animal. He raised his eyebrows. What are all these things around Jody? He asked. They look like little clouds. That's when Jody ran away in the snow. Father Mancuso decided to catch the 9 p.m. TWA flight to San Francisco. When the panic after George's call had left him, the priest immediately picked up the telephone and spoke to his cousin's wife. He told her he had changed his mind and would be coming out that night. She agreed to meet him at San Francisco's International Airport. Father Mancuso packed only one suitcase, called his mother, the diocese office, and a cab company. By 8, he was out of the rectory and on his way to Kennedy Airport. When the priest checked in with the TWA counter, he looked again at his palms. The blotches were gone, but his fear wasn't. Jimmy and Carrie went to stay at their mother's house that night. But before they left, there was a small celebration at Mrs. Connor's house. Because of the dramatic feeling of relief that swept over the Lutzes just to be free of 112 Ocean Avenue, it was practically a party. George and Kathy now wanted to talk about their experiences, and in her family, they had a sympathetic and credulous audience. Events spilled from their lips in a flood as they tried to explain what happened to them. Finally, George revealed his plans to rid his house of whatever evil force remained there. He told his mother-in-law and Jimmy that research groups would be invited to participate, but they would have to conduct their investigations by themselves. Under no circumstances would he or Kathy ever enter 112 Ocean Drive again. Ocean Drive? <laughs> okay. Danny, Chris, and Missy were to sleep in Jimmy's room. The boys were exhausted from the, harrowing from the harrowing appearance of the monster the night before and from the excitement of fleeing to their grandmothers. But they did not want to talk about the white-hooded demon figure. When George pressed to tell them their vision, both boys fell silent and looks of fear came over their faces. Missy appeared to be entirely unaffected by the whole affair. She adapted easily enough to the new adventure and made herself right at home with a few dolls she had cashed at her grandmother's. 
She wasn't even perturbed when Kathy questioned her further about Jody's picture. The little girl would only say, that's, that is what the pig looked like. I'm telling you, she's crazy. George and Kathy took their baths, took their what? Took their baths. <laughs> George and Kathy took their baths early, both luxuriated in the hot water and soaked for a long time. It was a dual cleansing, their bodies and their fright. By 10 p.m., they were in bed in the guest room. For the first time in almost a month, the Lutzes fell asleep in each other's arms. George awoke first. He felt as if he was having a dream because he had the sensation of floating in the air. He was aware of his body being flown around in the bedroom and then landing softly back on the bed. Then still in his dreamlike state, Kathy saw George levitate off the bed. She rose about a foot and slowly began to drift away from him. George reached out a hand to his wife. In his eyes, the movement was almost in slow motion, as though his arms, as though his arm was not attached to his body. He tried to call to her, but for some reason he couldn't remember her name. George could only watch Kathy fly higher toward the ceiling. Then he felt himself slight. He felt himself being lifted, and again he had the sensation of floating. He could hear someone calling to him from a great distance. George knew the voice. It sounded very familiar. He heard his name again. George? Now he remembered. It was Kathy. George looked down and saw that she was back on the bed looking up at him. He began to drift toward Kathy, then felt himself slowly settling back down on the bed beside her. George, she cried. You are floating in the air. Kathy grabbed his arm and pulled him off the bed. Come on, she shouted. She shouted, We've got to get out of this room. As though he was sleepwalking, George followed his wife. At the head of the staircase, they both stopped and recoiled in horror. Coming up the steps towards them was a snake-like line of greenish-black slime. George knew he had not been dreaming. It was all real. Whatever he had thought they left forever back at 112 Ocean Avenue was following them wherever the Lutzes fled. So, I'm just going to read the epilogue too because I think this is um, a month after. So, because this was, what was that, January 15th was their last day? Yeah, January 15th. So then this is a month later. So I think the, the epilogue is about the investigations. On February 18, 1976, Marvin Scott of New York's Channel 5 decided to investigate further the reports on the so-called cursed home of Amityville, Long Island. The mission called for spending the night in the haunted home at 112 Ocean Avenue. Psychics, clairvoyants, a demonologist, and parapsychologist were invited to participate. Scott had originally contacted the, three, the recent tenants, the Lutz family, and requested permission to film activities at their deserted house. George Lutz agreed and sat down at a meeting with Scott in a small pizzeria in Amityville. George refused to re-enter 112 Ocean Avenue, but said he and his wife Kathy would wait for the investigators the next day at the Italian restaurant. To provoke the overpowering force said to be within the house, a crucifix and blessed candles were placed at the center of the dining room table. The researchers held the first three seances at 10.30 p.m. Present around the table were Lorraine Warren. I did not know that. Yeah, I didn't either. A clairvoyant, her husband, Ed, a demonologist, psychics, Mary Pascarella, and Mrs. Albert Riley, and George Kikoris of the Psychical Research Institute in Durham, North Carolina. How has there not been a movie made? With the Warrens involved. I don't know. The, the new, you know, right. the... Um, I don't know. Insidious movies. Yeah. Is it Insidious? Oh, uh, Conjuring. 
Conjuring. Yeah. How has there not been a Conjuring movie with them? I don't know. I because I didn't know that they. I didn't know the Warrens were involved in this. Mm-mm. It doesn't surprise me because uh-uh. the Warrens are kind of famous. Interesting. Marvin Scott also joined the group at the table. During the seance, Mary Pascarella became ill and had to leave the room. In a quaking voice, she said, That in back of everything, there seems to be some kind of black shadow that forms a head, and it moves. And as it moves, I feel personally threatened. Mrs. Riley, in a mediumistic tense, oh, in a mediumistic trance, began gasping. It's upstairs in the bedroom. What's here makes your heart speed up. My heart's pounding. Ed Warren wanted to see the wanted to end the seance. Ms. Riley continued to gasp, then quickly came out of her trance and back to normal consciousness. Then George Kikoris, the psychic researcher, also became violently ill and had to leave the table. Observer Mike Linder of WNEWFM stated that he had felt a sudden numbness, a kind of cold sensation. Clairvoyant Lorraine Warren finally voiced her own opinion. Whatever is here is, in my estimation, most definitely of a negative nature. It has nothing to do with anyone who had once walked the earth in human form. It is right from the bowels of the earth. Television cameraman Steve Petropoulos, who had been assigned some scary assignments in combat zones, experienced heart palpitations and shortness of breath when he investigated the sewing room upstairs where the negative force was said to be concentrated. When Lorraine Warren and Marvin Scott went to that room, they both came out saying they had felt a momentary chill. Lorraine and Ed Warren also found a source of discomfort in the living room. Miss Warren thought that some negative forces were centered in statues and non-living things. That whatever is here is able to move around at will. It doesn't have to stay here, but I think it's a resting place. She also thought there was something demonic in the inanimate objects. Mrs. Warren indicated the fireplace and banister on the second floor without being forewarned of their connection with the Lutzis' problems. As some people slept in some of the second floor bedrooms, a photographer shot infrared pictures in the vain hope of capturing some ghostly image on film. Jerry Salvin of the Psychical Research Institute wandered about the home with a battery lantern searching for for physical evidence. At 3.30 a.m., the Warrens attempted another seance. There was nothing unusual reported, no sounds or strange phenomena. All the psychics felt the room had been neutralized. The atmosphere, they said, simply wasn't right at the moment. But they definitely felt that the house on Ocean Avenue was harboring a demonic spirit, one that could be removed only by an exorcist. When Marvin Scott returned to the little pizzeria, the Lutzes were gone. By March, they had moved clear across the country to California. They left behind all their belongings, all their worldly goods, and all the money they had invested in their dream home. Just to be rid of the place, they signed their interest over to the bank that held the mortgage. Pending its resale, its windows were boarded up to discourage vandalism and to prevent the curious, the morbid, and the warned from entering. On Good Friday, 1976, Father Mancuso recovered from pneumonia, and in April he was transferred by the bishop of his diocese to another parish. It is nowhere near 112 Ocean Avenue. Now, Missy gets upset when she is asked about Jody. Danny and Chris can still vividly describe the monster who chased them that final night, and Kathy will not talk about the period 
will not talk about that period in her life at all. George has sold his interest in William H. Perry Incorporated. He does hope that those who hear his story will understand how dangerous negative entities can be to the unwary, to the unbelieving. They are real, George insists, and they do inflict evil when the opportunity presents itself. So, and I was going to read the afterword, but basically he's just saying that the author is just... He believes them. Yeah, he believes them, and like to the best of his knowledge, all of the events in this story that he told happened. So. Well, I hate to say it, but if the Warrens got involved... Yeah, it's obviously... They prove and disprove a lot of shit. Mm-hmm. The real ones. Now, the Conjuring movies are good, but the <clears throat> real Warrens... Oh, yeah. Which, I mean, that awesome. was them. I mean, it was really them, like the real them. Well, yeah, I'm just saying, but like you know. people are watching the movies and they're like, oh my God. But no, they have like they hundreds of cases. Lorraine died. No. Well, she died later. Ed died first. Okay. Because they're she's, both, so they're she's both in the dead. first movie. Mm-hmm. The first Conjuring movie. You can actually see her in the crowd or whatever. Yeah. The, yeah. Um, and fun fact, did not know this. Ed is the only non- um, ordained minister mm-hmm. who is considered a like I don't want to say licensed, but like ordained exorcist right, for the right, Catholic right. Church, mm-hmm. which is super like weird because Catholics are so like oh yeah tight knit. But I guess because of who he is and what he's done, they're mm-hmm. like, "Yep, you're the guy." Right. Well, this episode has been long enough. Because um, we've been recording for two hours and 20 minutes. I don't know how long the episode actually is going to be. Probably going to be a two-hour episode. <clears throat> I don't know. We'll see. Um, but yeah, I mean, I hope you guys liked it. And we probably won't be doing this for a while. So I'm going to go back to doing normal research. It's very long-winded. But again, the reason why we did the book was because it does everyday accounts. Mm-hmm. We can talk about it. We can discuss the day-to-day. It's not. It's not the movies. It's not about the Defoe's, which everybody the knows. The I don't know why. William Defoe. That's why I want to keep saying it. The Defoe's. Everybody knows about that. This book, the original book from the original author who interviewed the real people, mm-hmm. is the best source for this. So that's why I read the book. Yeah, that's why we chose to do the book because I looked it up. I looked, I researched for like weeks and weeks and I could never find anything that gave me something no, that like was No, like 90% of it's like day. sketchy stuff happened and they left. Yeah. They were tortured. It was they, never, you know. I could never find anything that was like day to day, which is what I really wanted to break down for you guys. And <clears throat> hell, if there's, if there's another story out there that you want us to do you want us to like break down like this again so that you get like a full experience? All you got to do is email us and let us know and I will do it. Yeah, or post it on Facebook or whatever. <clears throat> yeah. It doesn't matter. You can send a message on Facebook. You can send an email. I mean, you could do anything. And hold on. The most <laughs> important part is even through all of George Lutz's very, very poor decisions, <laughs> the fucking dog lived. Yeah. That's what matters. That's what matters. I don't. Yeah. I thought I thought for sure he So was... this book is animal friendly. Yay. Dog doesn't die. <laughs> Even after George Lutz was like, you're going to stay in the cellar that you hate. Oh my god, I know. <laughs> Fucking jackass. Okay. Well, I Hope guess. you liked it. Yeah. Um, this is the last episode for Amityville. Forever. Oh my god. 
<laughs> this is it. We're done. We peaked. Yeah. So, I guess we'll return to our normal scheduled, you know, whatever we want to do next week. So, okay. I guess we'll see you next time. Later. Bye. Thanks for coming to hang out with us and letting us tell you stories. Don't forget, you can find us on social media, Facebook and Instagram at 3AM Tales of Terror. You can find pictures from each episode there, as well as our website, 3, the number 3, 3AMTalesOfTerror.com. You can also subscribe with your email at our website for updates as well. If you have questions or story ideas for us, you can email us at info at 3AMTalesOfTerror.com. If you want to support us, you can sign up to become part of our Patreon. There, you will get ad-free episodes as well as bonus content. We hope you'll join us next week. And And we we hope hope you are terrified. terrified.